Warning, this podcast contains heavy spoilers for not just one movie, but entire franchises. We highly recommend going and watching these movies before listening to us as a companion piece that stitches all the timelines into one creepy, crime-ridden story. There will be no more spoiler warnings. We do not break character. After this, there is no turning back. You've been warned. Hit the music. You are talking about the nonsensical ravings of a lunatic mind. It's alive! It's alive! It's alive! I'm not going to take credit for this joke, right? This joke I got from the woman who plays Aunt Esther on Sanford and Son. I was listening okay. to one of her comedy albums on Spotify, but this one made me laugh. There's this husband and wife, right? And they're kind of old school. You know what, you know what I mean? The, the husband goes out to work and the wife stays at home taking care of the house. Okay. Now, this couple have no children. So the wife, she gets lonely during the day at home alone while the husband's at work. The husband, worried about his wife, suggests that she gets a pet, like mm-hmm. a cat or a dog or something, you know, just to keep her company during the day. Yeah. The wife thinks this is a great idea, and the next day she heads to the pet shop. So she goes in and she asks the shop assistant if he has any cats. He says, sorry, lady, we're all out. Then she asks if they have any dogs. Again, the shop assistant shook his head and said, sorry, lady, we're all out. So what do you have, asks the lady. Well, we have a ninja monkey. Confused, the lady asks, what's a ninja monkey? Well, says the shop assistant, it's a monkey that knows karate. No way, the lady says, prove it. So the sales assistant gets the monkey and says, monkey, karate the wall. And quick as a flash, the monkey jumped up and with one chop knocks a huge hole in the wall. The lady's impressed, buys the monkey on the spot. So that night, she's in bed with her husband, and the husband asks, Did you go to the pet store today? I don't see any dog or cat around the place. Did you not find one you liked? They were all out, the lady replied. But I got a ninja monkey instead. A ninja monkey, says the man. What the hell is a ninja monkey? So the wife explains it's a monkey that knows karate. The husband, not amused, replies, Ah, karate my balls. (laughs) (laughs) Hello and welcome to It's Alive Alive Podcast. This is a true crime paranormal interstellar podcast covering unbelievable stories that sound like they were ripped straight from the pages of a Hollywood script. I'm your host, the man of many names, the outlaw Harley Ray, the bruiser Bronson, Dr. H. Josh Smokenstein, THC, or you can just call me Josh for short. And with me as always is my very own scream queen, the perfect combination of beauty and brains, the brightest Smokenstein in India, Hardy, the expert of guts and gore, the gorgeous, the sexy Amy Rose. And this is our official first episode of the new year. <laughs> Not, not bonuses. It's not late. Mm-hmm. It's exactly on time. We had nice bonus episodes to start the new year but out. For us to say Happy New Year, it's a bit late. <laughs> 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 what about New Year's resolutions? You got any New Year's resolutions? To write the right days. Huh? To write the right days. Oh, are you still writing I'm still, so I'm still catching myself doing 2022 half the time at work. 2022? Yeah. <laughs> You're well behind in the times. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> My plan was just to organize the shit out of all of this and get us rolling like a well-oiled machine. And I started that today. I got our uh, schedule all up. We have a calendar now with all our recording dates, all our subject dates for the entire year up there. You're very organized. Yeah. In yeah. fairness. 
But um, I was looking stuff up about New Year's resolutions. And did you do you know where New Year's resolutions started? Vaguely. So the ancient Babylonians are said to have been the first people to make New Year's resolutions some 4,000 years ago. They were also the first to hold recorded celebrations in honor of the New Year, though for them the year began not in January but in mid-March when the crops were planted. During a massive 12-day religious festival known as Akitu, the Babylonians crowned a new king or reaffirmed their loyalty to the reigning king. They also made promises to the gods to pay their debts and return any objects they had borrowed. These promises could be considered the forerunners of our New Year's resolutions. If the Babylonians kept their words, their gods would bestow favor on them for the coming year. If not, they would fall out of the gods' favor, a place no one wanted to be. A similar practice occurred in ancient Rome after the reform-minded emperor Julius Caesar tinkered with the calendar and established January 1st at the beginning of the new year circa 46 BC. Named for Janus, the two-faced god whose spirit inhabited doorways and arches, January had special significance for the Romans. Believing that Janus symbolically looked backwards into the previous year and ahead into the future, the Romans offered sacrifices to the deity and made promises of good conduct for the coming year. I like that idea. The, you know, mm. the, the whole looking back and looking uh, and forward, forward. For, for that yeah. God to be the symbol of the new year. For early Christians, the first day of the new year became the traditional occasion for thinking about one's past mistakes and resolving to do and be better in the future. In 1740, the English clergyman John Wesley, founder of the Methodism, of Methodism created the Covenant Renewal Service, most commonly held on New Year's Eve or New Year's Day. Methodism is the really hardcore one, right? I think so. It's like so. righteous gemstone style, isn't it? Oh, I was about to say I knew a Methodist in college, but now I can't remember if it was a Methodist or Baptist. Also known as watch night services, they include readings from scriptures and hymn singing and served as a spiritual alternative to the ruckus celebrations normally held to celebrate the coming of the new year. Yeah, the ruckus celebrations sound much more fun. <laughs> now popular within evangelical Protestant churches, especially African-American dominations and denominations, sorry, and congregations, watch night services held on New Year's Eve are often spent praying and making resolutions for the coming year. Yeah, well, judging off this week's story maybe they had the right idea i know if this case is legit then my whole belief system is kind of turned up on its head isn't it yeah kind of fucks your antichrist anti-christian even stands <laughs> unless it's all just an extended joke played by a cruel trickster god loki's been known to do some fucked up shit before reigning it in after a while mm-hmm. i actually have a theory about this and this is a serious theory i've thought about okay right so you have the norse apocalypse story of Ragnarok right and the idea of Ragnarok is that Loki and his children being a a fucking wolf and a serpent and all this Mm -hmm. come and there's a big war between them and the gods like Odin, Thor, Freya, Freya all them yeah and um eventually anyway this battle goes on and on and the gods do lose the battle Mm. and then that's Ragnarok and it all ends and then it all starts again from scratch you know it's just a big circle round and round and round and round but I had the theory that if you're taking that as a literal battle between the two of them right Mm. that's fine like on a battlefield fighting back and forth but my theory was if you were a god like Loki would your best way to destroy and kill the gods permanently not be to replace them in the eyes of mankind 
So what if Loki was Jesus and came to Earth to convince people that Christianity was a thing and that they should only be following one God, essentially taking the other gods out of power by us not worshipping them anymore? That being Ragnarok. And, you know, Christianity yeah, yeah, is yeah. the thing that, that, that caused Ragnarok and killed the gods, you know? Interesting. See? So that's my little theory. Mm. My uh, Clash of the Titans theory. <laughs> <laughs> but for this week, I'll have to put my feelings aside and be impartial in our examination of the demon known within Christianity as Pazuzu. So who or what is Pazuzu and why should we be terrified of it? So who is Pazuzu? I don't know, Josh. Who is Pazuzu? Well, just like everything supernatural, it depends on who you ask. While the tale we begin today focuses on the Christian depiction of the demon Pazuzu, just like many Christian information and characters, Pazuzu existed long before the religion that made it famous, with its name first being found in records of ancient Mesopotamian religion. Mesopotamian religion was the original religious beliefs and practices of the civilization of the ancient Mesopotamia. I knew I'd fuck that one up. I, I, I got through the big ones, though. I got their religion kind of right. Mesopotamia. Mesopotamia. I am confused. Mesopotamian? Mesopotamia. Yeah, that's okay. it. Particularly Sumer, Akkad, Assyria, and Babylonia between circa 6000 BC and 400 AD. Good save, huh? Good job. <laughs> also called Fazuzu. Pazuzu, that's not a big difference, is a personification of the southwestern wind and held kingship over the Lilu go- wind god, demons, gods, Jesus. No, <laughs> none of those people, just wind demons. As an apotropaic entity, he is considered as both a destructive and dangerous wind, but also as a repellent to other demons, one who safeguards the home from their influence. In particular, he protects pregnant women and mothers, whom he could defend from the machinations of the demoness Lamashtu, his rival. He is invoked in ritual and representations of him are used as defense charms. So he's not sounding all that bad so far. Like, if you can use it to protect your home and family, how bad can it really be? Exactly. Like I said earlier, Christians have a tendency to take what they need from history and reshape it to fit their own needs. See, some gods become saints, such as St. Bridget, formerly known as the Irish god Bridget. Some gods become fairies, which is evident in Celtic, Irish, Norse, and Icelandic folklore. Some got swept under the rug and forgotten about, but some, they became just another name, another alias, another mask to hide behind. The man behind that mask, well, it could only be one person. The Christian's big bad himself, the fallen angel Lucifer, morning star, also known as Satan himself. You know, I always wondered what was the story between Satan and God. Like, what caused him to fall out in the first place? And how do Christians preach forgiveness and turning the other cheek? But at the same time, this guy and all non-believers will burn in hell for all of eternity for not following their rules or playing the game their way. Well, according to the Old Testament, Satan, or Lucifer, as he was called when he was an angel, was one of God's creations. Two Old Testament passages, Isaiah 14, 12, 15, and Ezekiel 28, 11, 19, allude to the angel Lucifer's original position as a very exalted being and likely the highest ranking of all the angels. Ezekiel 28, 12, 15 also states that in addition to being powerful, it's likely that Lucifer was the most beautiful of all God's creations. 
but Lucifer was not satisfied with his lot in heaven as God's favourite angel. Instead, Lucifer wanted to become God himself and planned what could essentially be called a military coup to overthrow God and take over as leader of the universe. In essence, Satan rebelled against God because he wasn't happy as an assistant to God, but instead wanted to have God's job. How have the Christians not paid for a movie? They, they've, they've made a movie and made us watch Jesus get tortured for two hours or whatever it was. But they haven't made an epic fucking war movie between God and Satan and their armies. I mean, their guy comes out on top at the end. And, and Satan is knocked to the bottom. I mean, how cool of a story would that be? Like, just him being up there and, like, building this military coup, you know, like, building his followers and yeah. all this stuff. And then attacking God and then the big fucking battle at the end. And then God fucking, you know, finally beats him and, and throws him out of heaven. And you see him flying down out of heaven like, you know, like a meteor or some shit yeah. like that. How has that not been made yet? Is that not kind of along the lines of what that is? It Paul Bettany in the movie Legion? I, I'm pretty sure you have seen it. I don't know. The only place I have seen this done was South Park. Oh, well, there you go. When the PSP came out. And, so it's uh, been Kenny done. got like the, uh, <laughs> the high score on a Heaven versus Hell, a video game. But the reason the game had been put out, it was put out by the angels in heaven to see if they could find a tactician good enough to, to help them beat the devil and his army. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, uh, oh, they were taking the piss out of the Matrix as well. Because uh, every time, you know, like when Kenny died... Satan's helpers came running to him and was like, they have their Kare- Keanu Reeves. They have their Keanu Reeves. <laughs> <laughs> the chosen one. <laughs> anyway, go on. You should do a Loki script about your one. Huh? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I thought about that, a kind of antichrist. It's like a Norse kind of twist on it. But anyway, according to the Old Testament, upon learning of Lucifer's plan, God removed him from his dignified position and cast him out of heaven. This is often described as Satan's fall from heaven, although it's probably more accurate to say that he was exiled from heaven. Interestingly, in the Old Testament, when Satan tempts Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, he does so using the promise of godlike powers. In Genesis 3:15, as Satan tempts Eve to eat the fruit off the tree of knowledge, he tells her, For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, Then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. Satan convinced Eve to eat the fruit by telling her that after doing so, she will know what God knows. So obviously this is where the the great great deceiver shit comes from. Exactly, yeah, yeah. See, that's the thing about the Christian Satan. He's a liar and essentially the god and ruler of all evil demons and spirits. Old gods and demons, regardless of their temperament, were used for thousands of years to scare sinners and unbelievers. Regardless of the name used by the demon, they were always seen by Christians as puppets or masks for the true deceiver, Lucifer Morningstar, which is just Morningstar, Morningstar, isn't it? Or yep. yeah, that's right, yeah. Because it's Lucifer a nice is name, right, It sounds cool. It's and cool. I am going to continue to say it Lucifer Morningstar. So, although <laughs> we call today's demon Pazuzu, in the eyes of all involved, it was a battle with the devil himself that left them battered, bruised, scarred, scared, and in some cases, dead pazuzu or pazuzu like possessions aren't as rare as everyone thinks either nope in the late 1940s in the united states priests of the roman catholic church performed a series of exorcisms on an anonymous boy documented under the pseudonym roland doe or robbie Mannheim. the 14 year old boy was alleged to be a victim of demonic possession and the events were recorded by the attending priest raymond j bishop 
According to the author Thomas B. Allen, Roland was born into a German Lutheran family in 1935. During the 1940s, the family lived in Cottage City, Maryland. That sounds really cute. Yeah, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> I thought like, it sounded like a nice place to <laughs> live. All right. <laughs> According to Alan, uh, Roland was an only child and depended upon adults in his household for playmates, primarily his Aunt Harriet. His aunt, who was a spiritualist, introduced Roland to the Ouija board when he expressed interest in it. After Aunt Harriet's death, the family experienced strange noises, furniture moving of its own accord, and ordinary objects such as vases flying or levitating when the boy was nearby. The family turned to their Lutheran pastor, Luther Miles Schultz, for help. Long interested in parapsychology, Schultz arranged for the boy to spend a night in his home in order to observe him. When parapsychologist Joseph Banks Ryan learned that Schultz claimed he witnessed household objects and furniture seemingly moving by themselves, Ryan wondered if Schultz unconsciously exaggerated some of the facts. Schultz advised the boy's parents to see a Catholic priest. According to the traditional story, the boy then underwent a number of exorcisms. Edward Hughes, a Roman Catholic priest, conducted an exorcism on Roland at Georgetown University Hospital, a Jesuit institution. What is a Jesuit priest? Is that different from a Catholic or are they just Catholic priests? They are Catholic priests, but they are a, a, they, they're a different order of Catholic priests. So I it's basically that they were, for, they were founded by St. Ignatius of, of Loyola. So do the way you hear you'd have the presentation convent and they'd be Joel, pre, the presentation sisters. They're just okay. a different order. The priests are oh, a different order. So you'd have really Dominicans and... Yeah. Oh, I just thought that was the name of the churches. No, that's an order church, as well. The St. John's Church, St. Brendan's Church, and all that. Yeah. So they're all different orders than the priests that are in them and all that. That's it, yeah. Ah. Franciscans... See, yeah. I didn't know that. I was wondering because I was doing research for this and they're all over, but I know it's a Catholic story as well. So it was just, yeah. Okay. That's what it is. So during the execution, the boy allegedly... The execution, Jesus <laughs> Christ. <laughs> Poor Robbie Manham. And that's the end of the story. Everyone the was charged end. with murder and that's it. <laughs> you want to try that one again? During the exorcism. <laughs> I feel awful. Do not let Amy give you an exorcism. <laughs> I will be the get last carried away. you ever have. Better their head than mine. Just saying. <laughs> During the exorcism, the boy allegedly slipped one of his hands. I'm sorry. <laughs> one of his hands out of the restraints, broke a bedspring from under the mattress and used it as an impromptu weapon, slashing the priest's arm and resulting in an exorcism ritual being halted. The family travelled to St. Louis, where Roland's cousin contacted one of his professors at St. Louis University Bishop, who in turn spoke to William S. Bodern, an associate of the college church. Together, both priests visited Roland in his relative's home, where they allegedly observed a shaking bed, flying objects, and the boy speaking in a guttural voice and exhibiting an aversion to anything sacred. Bodern was granted permission from the Archbishop to perform another exorcism. Well, balls. I've already, it's already going to be up and released, but, uh, well, it's going to come out in the next 24 hours. But I did this story as well on Mini Monsters. Yeah. For, um, for, um, TikTok and Facebook and all our socials and all that. I misread that Baldron's name for Baldron. Do you know, like uh, like the wrestler from there. Like, you could uh, be right. Famed. You could no, be right. No, because where the E and the R is, you're right. Oh, uh, Earn uh, instead uh, of Ren. Yeah, yep, yeah. I fucked that one up. Oh, well. <laughs> Shit happens. 
It's required in all support for that. The exorcism took place at the Alexian Brothers Hospital in South St. Louis, Missouri, which was changed to South City Hospital. Again, on my mini monsters, you have no idea how many times it took me to record Alexian. I, every time I stopped the recording, I was able to say Alexian, no problem. But then I'd start the sentence as soon as I got to it. I'd be like, Alexian, Alexian. I just couldn't wrap your mouth around that. I eventually got it, but it took a while. Good job. Uh, before the next exorcism ritual began another priest Walter Halloran was called to the psychiatric wing of the hospital where he was asked to assist Bodern in his 1993 book Possessed the true story of an exorcism author Thomas B. Allen offered the consensus of today's experts that Robbie was just a deeply disturbed boy with nothing supernatural about him Author Mark Obsasvik questioned many of the supernatural claims associated with this story, proposing that Roland Doe was simply a spoiled, disturbed bully who threw deliberate tantrums to get attention or to get out of school. Obsasvik's putting up with no shit here. No. <laughs> like, no, you're just a spoiled little shit. Get your ass into school, you little prick. <laughs> Bet you his kids know what's what. <laughs> <laughs> if it wasn't for the name, I'd be like, he's an Irish dad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Maybe he had an Irish mom. <laughs> Obsasnik reports that Halloran, who was present at the time of the exorcism, never heard the boy's voice change. And he thought the boy merely mimicked Latin words he'd heard clergymen say, rather than gaining a sudden ability to speak Latin. But do you not think, right, if that was true, the priests still know how to speak Latin. So they're going to know that he's just repeating words and that he's not making complete sense sentences or anything like that. Yeah. It's hardly like the priests are going to be going in there saying bad words or saying satanic words or or devil kind of words. So he must be like just saying fucking stuff back to him like praise Jesus, the power of Christ compels you, get out of this child. (laughs) You know, back to them. Yeah, but like would the devil not kind of, if, if, you know, like, you know, if we were to believe it, like, would you not think that that's the kind of way that they creep you out? Like, like take parts. Like, this is the time when they'd have all known prayers in Latin. Like, so I mean, like, they yeah, would it not well, be kind of creepy him shouting parts of the Our Father at you in Latin. Like, I reckon that'd be fucking. I don't know. You'll see later what fucking real scary is when it comes to talking in uh, different languages and shit like that. But go on. Okay. Obsastic reported that when marks were found on the boy's body, Halloran failed to check the boy's fingernails to see if he had made the marks himself. Obsasnik also questioned the story of Hugh's attempts to exercise the boy and his subsequent injury, saying that he could find no evidence of such an episode that had actually occurred. Two Christian academics, Terry D. Cooper, a professor of psychology, and Cindy K. Epperson, a professor of sociology, wrote that advocates of possession believe that although they are not frequent, exorcisms are necessary for casting out the demonic, and cases of genuine possession cannot be explained by psychiatry. Cooper and Epperson devoted a chapter of their book, Evil, Satan's Sin and Psychology, to the case and dismissed natural explanations in favor of a supernatural perspective regarding the nature of evil. So they actually thought this this was a genuine case. So these are two psychiatrists or academics that, yeah. that believe this stuff. No, again. Just because Christian you're academically academics. inclined doesn't mean you're not tapped. Well, they're Christian ac- well, academics. Yeah. So I would assume they're restricted by their beliefs and all that. Yeah. How can you be a Christian academic? I mean, like, what happens when evolution comes up and stuff like that in your discussions? Are you just like, nope, that didn't happen. Scientific fact. I said it. I'm a scientist, so now it's scientific but I think fact. Th- I think that there's a lot of Christians that are Christian that believe in dinosaurs. 
<laughs> the whole uh, Robbie Mannheim story, though, it, there is a lot of similarities between that and today's case with Regan McNeil, as a man named Father Lancaster Merrin could attest to. Father Lancaster Merrin was a Dutch priest and archaeologist who was born in the Netherlands to a Dutch father and English mother sometime in 1896. Living a regular childhood between England and the Netherlands, Father Merrin entered the seminary in his teenage years, studying religious archaeology on top of the usual priest curriculum. You know, Holy Bread 101 and how to turn wine into blood in five simple steps. Typical priest stuff. So he would have been studying probably throughout World War One and the aftermath. Yeah, seems about right. But as much as he would have to deal with throughout World War One is like, you know, food shortages. The Netherlands stayed neutral throughout the conflict and the effect on their country would be similar to what we see today. Today with the Russian Ukraine war, causing supply shortages, rising prices, and an influx of refugees throughout the country. Mm. No, it wasn't until World War II that Father Merrin would really feel the devil at work. Although still a neutral country throughout World War II, Holland was invaded regardless, and on the 15th of May 1940, one day after the bombing of Rotterdam, the Dutch forces surrendered. The Dutch government and the royal family relocated to London. Princess Juliana and her children sought refuge in Ottawa, Canada until after the war. The invaders placed the Netherlands under German occupation, which lasted in some areas until the Germans surrendered in May 1945. It was during this time, as he served as a parish priest in a small village in Nazi-occupied Holland, that Mirren had his fate shattered by a particularly brutal event. In 1944, a Nazi SS commander came raging into the village with a small platoon of men with him. One of their own had been murdered close by and they were out for vengeance. Mirren acted as negotiator and begged the commander to conduct a proper investigation to find the culprit. But the commander, Kessel, had another idea. Wishing to speed up the process, he gathered all the villagers outside the church and informed Mirren that he was to pick ten men out of the whole congregation to be executed as retribution. If he refused, the whole village would be gunned down and burned to the ground, and to prove he wasn't bluffing, he took a young girl from the crowd and executed her in front of everybody. How young? No older than ten from what I've read. Christ. Merrin then proceeded to walk through the crowd, signing the death warrant of ten men with the point of a finger. This would be his last act as a priest for five years as he lost his faith and made the decision to focus on archaeology as a career instead. Yeah, well, I can't really blame him after a traumatic experience like that. Yeah, I mean, if the devil is real, then the closest we've come to seeing an earth is Hitler and the Nazis. <laughs> to this day, if you ask anyone who was the most evil man in history, Hitler's name will come up almost straight away. So that'll tell you they're yet to be undone. Yeah, hopefully it'll stay that way. Hopefully. Yep. Okay, it's honesty time. We have a confession to make. We suck at socials! No good at Insta! Can't send a tweet, or an X, or whatever that supervillain looking motherfucker is calling it now. Stick to your space cars, Elon! But we know, you wanna chat. You wanna be kept updated. You wanna be alive alive all the goddamn time. So we're getting down from the anti-social soapbox and giving this a try. So come chat to us on Insta and Twitter at AliveAlivePod or hit us up by email at itsalivealivepod at gmail.com. We wanna hear from you. Tell us what you like, what you don't like. This is a project. It's still a work in progress and we just wanna give you more what you like and less of what you can't stand. So give us a like, give us a follow. We'll always hit you back and we'll 
always try to reply to everyone. So come say hi. We don't bite. Well, at least Amy doesn't. And she keeps me well fed, so you got nothing to worry about. Now, back to the show. <laughs> so here is where we introduce Pizuzu into our story. The now former father Mirren was working on an excavation site in the valley called Darati in the Turkana region of British Kenya. The site was the site of a famous battle. It's said that a great army led by two priests came to the valley searching for the origin of evil 1,500 years prior. When they arrived in the valley, the evil presence consumed them and one priest killed the other. When the lone surviving priest met it back, Emperor Justinian ordered a church be built over the site and then buried to seal the evil force inside of it. When reinforcements and builders made it to the site, they found all the soldiers slaughtered with a number of them crucified on upside-down crucifixes. Images and statues of the demon Pazuzu was found by a lot of the bodies. The builders of the church never meant it to be recorded in the Vatican documents. However, a vague reference to it was recorded and found in 1893. It's believed that the valley in Durati was the traditional spot of Lucifer's fall after the war in heaven. Either way, the site had a church built on it, sealed and buried, untouched, unused, still with the new church smelling it in an area not traditionally Christian at the time. This was enough to pique the interest of Mirren and he went along on the dig, curious to work out the mystery of the buried church. Only problem is that once the church was unsealed, mysterious supernatural events started to kick off. That they did. Villagers began to fall ill with mysterious illnesses. Madness struck men at random, causing them to act violently and almost supernaturally at times, resulting in a number of murders within the first week of the church's opening. Not just that, but swarms of locusts attacked the village repeatedly, feasting on the villagers' skin and wounds. Wounds inflicted by the mysterious plague that preceded them. So this is sounding like something straight out of the Bible. Plague, locusts, attacks, murder, madness... Wait, tell me again why people follow this religion. You said you'd stay impartial. I know, but they make it so hard. Said one priest to the other about the altar boy. (laughs) Upon entering the church for the first time, Merrin noticed that it was mostly your standard regular Christian church in pristine condition with the exception of two oddities and a little vandalism. Now, that should have, like, caused warning fucking signals straight away. Yeah. If this has never been opened, how is there vandalism? Do you know? Was it done before they sealed the church? Did they seal somebody inside? (sighs) Shit, where to go? The main crucifix on the altar had been desecrated and turned upside down to make the symbol of the devil. So that was the vandalism. Along with this were the odd angel statues, both brandishing weapons which were pointed to the ground or maybe towards hell. Either way, they were protecting the people above from the monster trap below in the dungeon of the church in the hell miles below. Little did they know that at this point the evil had already been released by uh, the unsealing of the church and Pazuzu's attack on the Kenyan tribe that lived above his prison was well underway. The goal of Pazuzu is simple. Like a parasite, it must find a host to feed off of and help vocalize and act out its evil deeds. And that's exactly what it did in Kenya in 1949 when Pazuzu entered the body of a young boy by the name of Kakumo. This would be the case that restored the faith of Father Marin. After seeing the plague and evil engulf the village, Marin was shook and wasn't sure what to believe. But he said himself in his autobiography, The Exorcist, that one look into Kakumo, Kakumo's. Ku, Kakumo's red eyes, Kakumo's. Kakumo's Kakumo's, red eyes was, and I quote, enough to bring the light of the Lord back to me. 
See, Marin hypothesized that if evil such as Pazuzu could exist in the universe, then its opposite must exist to keep it in line. This renewed feeling of fate is what Father Marin said helped him to defeat Pazuzu in their first battle. In a more spiritual, simpler time, exorcisms were generally performed more regularly, but even by the 40s, this practice had dwindled and was very rare. Yet the red tape needed today to perform an exorcism was still not in place. This allowed Mirren to take early action against the beast, performing his first exorcism and vanquishing Pazuzu from Kakumo, freeing the child, ending the plague, and to his belief, sending the demon back to hell. This all took a serious toll on Father Mirren's health, giving him lifelong heart and breathing problems going forward. After this event, Father Mirren returned to the church, splitting his time between his churchly duties and more religious-based archaeological digs. He continued to do this until, as an elderly priest in 1973, on an archaeological dig in Iraq, he again found images of the demon Pazuzu, and subsequently experienced other unusual phenomenon. Now, I haven't been able to find what that phenomenon was, but some weird shit was happening around Iraq at the time. Okay. He felt this was a sign and followed his gut feeling to return stateside. Not yet sure why, but deep down he could feel something pull him there. And these signs were just proof of that in his mind. So that's Father Marin's background, but what about Father Karras? Well, Father Damien Karras was a first-generation Greek-American from New York and was the only child of Constantine and Mary Karras. Born in 1935, he spent his whole childhood in New York, growing up on East 21st Street in Manhattan. While not destitute, the Karras' survived week-to-week, paycheck-to-paycheck, with Constantine working odd jobs as a handyman and his mother taking work as a cleaner. When I read about his childhood, all I could picture was good times with Florida out in the cleaning jobs and James just trying to find a steady job working shifts as cover just to, you know, get by another week. And just like good times, the dad would croak too early and kill the whole tone of the show. Spoiler alert, some people might not have known that yet, like, you know. Yeah, but it's an old American sitcom from the 70s. Like, spoiler alerts are only valid for the first decade of a story's existence. Yeah, I think you just made that up. Maybe. Either way, this is more than a decade. The show's like 50 years old, so what do you want me to do? And John Amos gets pissed off with JJ being goof. He complained and the writers killed his character, James, off. He's lucky it wasn't Chuck Larry writing the show or he would have been killed off. Uh, don't do it. Don't Dynamite! Do it. Uh, work. That was nice while it lasted, John. Moving on. As Amy said, Father Karras's father, Constantine, died when Damien was still very young. From what I could find out about it, the man had a heart attack just before Damien hit his teenage years. Now a single parent, Mary had to double down on her cleaning workload to, in order to ensure Damien would continue his studies and accomplish his goal of becoming a Catholic priest. A goal he accomplished when he became a Jesuit priest on July 30th, 1957. The Jesuits then sent him to medical school at Harvard, John Hopkins and Bellevue so that he could become a psychiatrist. The church paid for his education and upon finishing his education, he became a psychiatrist to the priests and an educator teaching classes at Woodstock Seminary in Maryland for just over a year. What did he teach? Psychiatry in religion and witchcraft. What? (laughs) <laughs> yep, apparently this guy was an expert on witchcraft. Obviously, though, he looked at it in a scientific, psychological way, do you know? Yeah, yeah. It was this critical thinking and his psychological teachings that led Father Karras down the same path as his soon-to-be partner in exorcism, Father Merrin. 
Kara spent his career listening to his peers' doubts and crises of faith. This constant bombardment of negativity coupled with the subject matter and the current state of the world he lived in, it was hard to see God in anything anymore. Yeah, you'd have to think an educated man like Harris would already be looking at the inner workings of the church and the corruption that would have infected the religion at this time. The 70s in the US seemed like it was corruption on every level. Couldn't trust the cops, the politicians or your spiritual leaders. Not much has changed. (laughs) Imagine what he must be hearing in these counselling sessions. In a lot of cases at this time, the Catholic seminaries were basically dumping grounds for homosexual men or men who are forced into the jobs by family. I mean, that's a big rural Irish thing, isn't it? The big farmer families, the oldest is the heir to the farm and the land. Then another will be expected to go to college and become a teacher or you know, something professional like a solicitor yeah. or something like that. And then the next will just be shipped off to become, become a free priest. Almost like, you know, future army, you get your career chip and it's implanted into you and that's it. Oh, that's shit. Yup. <laughs> I wouldn't be happy with it. No. I always said that to you. If one of the boys came to me and said they wanted to be a priest, I'd be heartbroken. I wouldn't want that lonely life for them, no, right, you know? I don't no. mind the religious side of it. It, it just seems I so... I want grandkids. Yeah, that too, but it just seems so lonely. Yeah. And ugh, and especially if you're a young priest jumping in now, because there's nothing but older priests there. They're just, you know, because there's not a lot of young priests. There was one involved. last year in Killarney. Young priest. One. One. <laughs> and there, I think that was the first one in a long time because there were celebrations like. Fucking hell. Mm. <laughs> so a lot of these men weren't men of supreme faith, but lost souls themselves, looking to God for answers but never hearing the reply. And as you said earlier, being an intellectual, educated man, Karras couldn't help but question his faith. Was God really there? Was anyone ever really listening? Someone was listening, all right, but not the entity he'd hoped for. And soon, Father Damien Karras would meet Pazuzu and the little girl it inhabited, 13-year-old Regan McNeil. And Regan was from that McNeil family, the the super, super famous McNeil family. So I don't need to get into Chris McNeil's backstory too much. An actress of her caliber is known far and wide already. And just like every Hollywood superstar, her life story has been played out time and time again in books, films, interviews and documentaries. So if you want to know a more fleshed out backstory or rundown of her Hollywood hits, then go find a good entertainment podcast. A film summary is not why you hit play today. You hit play not for Chris's story, but that of her daughter, Regan. So we're just going to hit on the points of Chris's life and career that are relevant to us today and that push uh, the narrative forward to our real story, and that is Regan and Pazuzu. Chris McNeil started working as a chorus girl on Broadway when she was only 14 years old. She frequently worked shows with Hollywood actor Howard McNeil. Howard, who was an accomplished actor and director, had over the past few years taken on the challenge of live theatre, writing, directing, producing and acting in a handful of semi-successful productions before again returning to what he does best, working in front and behind the camera on a movie set. After a brief, brief stint of flirting at rehearsals, Chris and Howard began a secret relationship, a relationship that saw a 15-year-old Chris become pregnant and led to the marriage of the couple secret relationship because he was like 20 years older than her and she was very very underage yeah but it's the 50s and they're celebrities so it was just ignored it also helped that they got married as soon as they found out again though isn't that illegal does the marriage even count if it's the if the bride is like a child yeah but her parents signed off on it so it was all above board nasty yep Either way, a few months after saying I do, baby Jamie arrived and Chris was head over heels in love with the new man in her life 
but at least the creepy relationship had a silver lining. Yeah, but it wouldn't last. Jamie had an infection that wouldn't go away and Chris's doctors at the time prescribed a new antibiotic that caused a plastic anemia. This caused Jamie to pass away at the age of three. Yeah. Chris decided that she would never be that close to anyone ever again. It also caused her to have a distrust of doctors. At the age of 20, she had a daughter, Regan. And while she did enter motherhood again with great caution, she couldn't help but melt at the sight of this tiny baby girl and the maternal instinct kicked in. But some leftover grief from Jamie did prevent her from showing love as openly as she once had, making her seem kind of distant and cold at times. Okay, that's understandable. Yeah. Shortly after Regan turned 11, Chris and Howard got a divorce. Howard felt that Chris had put her career before him and Regan and that they were separated for long periods of time. Chris was the one who filed for divorce, but Howard was the one who wanted that. Mm -hmm. So he kind of, she saw the writing on the wall and just said, fuck it. Yep. Get it done. I'll get there first. <laughs> Beat you to it, dickhead. <laughs> In April of 1971, Chris was in Georgetown, Washington, filming a musical comedy remake of Mr. Smith Goes to Washington with a subplot involving college riots. Most of the film was to be shot on location at Georgetown University. The movie was directed by Burke Dennings, a director she had become good friends with and frequently collaborated with. It was here she first saw Father Karras in passing as he counseled another priest on campus. Filming for the movie started on April 1st and ran for four weeks through to April 28th. Through that time, Chris and Regan would regularly go sightseeing, to dinner, shopping and spend time together on set. So Harrods claim that she was a cold distant mother is basically bullshit. Chris was a gentle mother to Regan and a good friend to her servants, but she was also known to be very aggressive to other people when she lost her patience or became desperate or worried, though she tried to avoid Regan seeing her like that, you know? Mm. One evening, as she neared the end of production in Washington, Chris went to spend time with Regan in their basement. The space was used as a utility room slash activity room for Regan. As Chris admired a bird sculpture Regan had made, she noticed her old Ouija board was on the table. Regan had been playing with it, using it to talk to her imaginary friend, who she had named Captain Howdy. Creepy. (laughs) Chris originally bought the Ouija board so she could explore her subconscious, but it didn't work. She played it with her friend and PA, Sharon Spencer, and Burke Dennings before. Since Chris was an atheist and did not believe that the Ouija board actually worked, she paid it no mind, although the name Captain Howdy did bother her a little as she thought it came from Howard and that Regan was using it as a way to deal with her negative feelings about the divorce. Mm. That night, Regan complained that she couldn't sleep because her bed was shaking and she could hear noises coming from the attic and from inside the walls. Chris checked the attic and saw nothing, so assuming they had mice or rats, she instructed her maintenance man to take care of it the very next day. Okay. After Regan's birthday, as Chris finished her work on the film, Regan began to become inexplicably ill. After a gradual series of poltergeist-like disturbances in their rented house, for which Chris attempted to find rational explanations for, Regan began to rapidly undergo disturbing psychological and physical changes. She refused to eat or sleep, became withdrawn and frenetic, and increasingly aggressive and violent. Regan was referred to Dr. Samuel Klein in Roslyn, Arlington, Virginia. He prescribed Ritalin and suggested waiting two weeks. He made an appointment for her to see him again on April 27th, 1971. 
On April 23rd, even with all the strange disturbances and Regan's illness, Chris held a rap party at her home in the form of dinner and drinks. The guests included University President's Assistant Father Joseph Dyer, along with Jesuit Dean Father Roy Wagger. Burke Dennings is the, and the director of Second Unit and Assistant Director Chuck. Apollo astronaut Captain Billy Cutshaw and his wife, Senator Henry Jackson and his wife, Helen, as well as Chris's neighbors, Mary Jo Perrin and Ellen Cleary. As the night went on, the host and her guests found themselves gathered around a piano as Father Dyer led Chris and the rest in a sing-along over drinks. According to Father Dyer, the night was going along nicely, although he did remark Chris who was asking some odd questions about like uh, demons and exorcisms mm-hmm. and shit. Mm-hmm. When they noticed Regan standing at the doorway. Chris, sounding a little worried, asked Regan if she was okay. Regan responded, staring at Captain Billy Cutshaw, saying, You're going to die up there. She then urinated on the carpet in front of all the guests, causing Chris to run to her side and putting a premature end to the night's festivities. Obviously, this was a reference to his space expeditions. Yeah, maybe. Maybe she was talking to someone else in the room, though. You know, someone that was about to go up somewhere they weren't supposed to be and have a big fall as a result. Yikes. Because not long after this, Burke Dennings will be found dead just a few yards from the McNeil's rented residence. Before we get to that, though, Regan's party incident made Chris even more concerned for her daughter. After the guests had left and Chris had Regan settled in bed, she went and spoke to her friend Mary Jo Perrin. Mary Jo was a little eccentric and fancied herself a bit of a supernatural occult expert. She told Chris that the Ouija board was the probable cause of Regan's illness. She believed that as well as there being a possibility of demons seeing it as an invite into Regan's soul, it could also tap into the subconscious, possibly making Regan believe she had been possessed, essentially making it as dangerous as the real thing. Chris said in later interviews that after Mary Jo left, she strongly considered dumping the demonic board, but the fear that Regan's dependency on it could cause her to get worse with its sudden disappearance caused her to think again. But before she could make a decision either way, she heard a ruckus kick off in Regan's room. Hearing Regan scream, Chris says she ran to the room in a panic, terrified of what she might find next. And she was right to be worried because when she got to the room, what she found was Regan in the centre of her bed, gripping to her sheets for dear life as the bed violently shook, pounding the wooden floor as it almost jumped independently in place. You think witnessing this will be the straw that broke the camel's back? Like, how would you explain that? How would you rationalise that? Ghost, no way. She's just a mechanical bull and enthusiast and went to busy schedule of a 13-year-old to deal with. She tries to get practising whenever it's possible. I'd get myself checked. <laughs> I, I'd be questioning what I just saw. Questioning your sanity? Yeah, or, yeah. Yes. I'd be going, getting me checked for him. Yeah, but I suppose in a few of these cases, you'll see there's more than one witness. But we'll get to that. Like, yeah. No, I say there's more than one witness, but at the same time, every time I bring that up, it's also that it's the same witnesses and, you know, there's only one or two of them, so you don't know if they can be trusted when it comes to mm. the more fanatical, crazy shit that happens yeah, in the yeah. story. Because it does get wild. No, instead of going to the local witch doctor, Chris went back to the failing US medical system. Being a celeb, Chris could afford the best of the best in healthcare, but even with all that, no solution could be found for Regan's strange maladies. 
First up was Dr. Klein who suggested an EEG. The results came back normal. He then suggested it could be epilepsy, but really he was reaching for any plausible answer he could think of. In his defense, two or three hundred years ago, people with temporal lobe disorders were often considered to be possessed by a devil. Yeah, that's true. But I mean, like, you could sneeze wrong back in the day and they'd be like, devil or witch. (laughs) (laughs) Sneeze to curse on him. Say the wrong thing to the wrong person and you're the devil or the witch and you're dying. (laughs) 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 Next, a neurologist named Dr. David Taney Taney, ran some tests, including x-rays and an MRI, but again, all results returned normal. Dr. Klein then suggested a spinal tap, but again, no joy. That sucks to have to yeah. go through a fucking spinal tap and get nothing yep. back from it. I've never had one, but I've heard about them. It's they supposed do not to be dreadful. Sound. Yeah, mm-hmm. don't sound pleasant. No, thank you. So it was after this round of testing that Regan was released from hospital for the comfort of her own home, while doctors formed a new strategy. Not long after returning home, though, the activity began to intensify. And when it was at its worst, Chris called Dr. Klein to come observe the odd goings-on, which is kind of putting it lightly, to be honest. (laughs) Dr. Klein claims he, along with Chris, Sharon Spencer and butler Carl Engstrom, witnessed Regan being thrown around her bed like a ragdoll. As she flipped and flopped around, she screamed, he's burning me and no one am I. Dr. Klein suggested having a nurse on call in the house in order to perform injections on Regan to keep her sedated, but Chris refused due to her distrust in doctors after the death of her son, Jamie. Sharon volunteered to give Regan the shots as she was experiencing giving injections. This seemed to make everyone happy, for the time being at least. Chris accompanied Dr. Klein back to his office to discuss Regan's case a little more. Dr. Klein, at a loss, with nothing but positive test results, that's positive as in good and not positive as in, sorry, sorry, I'm afraid you're HIV positive, suggests psychiatry as the next step in treatment. I know wrapping your head around demonic possession has to be hard, especially for rational people, but how do you witness something like this and come to the conclusion that therapy is a solution for this child? I mean, clearly there's something else, something outside their understanding at play here. Maybe he was suggesting all of them go to therapy. All right, for all seeing this, we're all fucking mental. We all need to go talk to a psychiatrist. True. Yeah, like that group, uh, what's called a group thing? Group where they, therapy? No, no, I know it's group therapy, but where, where everybody has that, you know, like, um, like, a, like a mental break. There, there's a name on it, like that dancing plague. Oh, um... Oh... Shit, and it's right at the point. It's really obvious as well. Fucking uh, hysteria. mass hysteria, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mass hysteria, a yeah. group hysteria. We got it. We got there. Ouch. <laughs> anyway, Chris returned to the house at about seven twenty-one, only to find the property empty of all adults, at least. Regan was still tucked up tightly in her bed. She was tucked up in bed, but the bedroom window was wide open, and the room was freezing, like you could see your breath in there. At least that's what Chris says when she recalls the night. See, I find, I, I was wondering then, would that have something more to do with the demonic possession? Because this is April in America. Well, April in Washington. Is it cold there? In yeah, Washington in would be like Would it New be York, like that it? cold that you're seeing your breath from having the window well, open? Well, like, think of a frosty evening here in spring, like, you're still getting... In April? Yeah, if it was frosty, you'd still see your breath at night, like... Needless to say, Chris was not happy. She left her sickly child in the care of the house staff and had returned home to find they had all abandoned their post. 
About 40 minutes later, Sharon returned home. She explained that it was her that was left watching Regan, but due to the hour, she had to go and get Regan's Thorazine before the pharmacy shut. She assured Chris she had not left Regan alone, stating that Burke Dennings had called by looking for Chris and had agreed to babysit while Sharon was out. Chris says she scolded Sharon for being irresponsible and trusting someone like Burke to take care of Regan, but let it pass as no harm seemed to be done and everyone was home safe now. Burke was known to be a bit of a drinker and not very reliable outside of a movie set. He was also known to be quite cruel when drunk, regularly following Chris's butler Carl around calling him a Nazi and a Kraus. Carl was Swiss but didn't let Burke get to him even though he did find his immature wisecracks annoying at the best of times. Carl's wife Willie worked in the house too as a maid. They have a bit of a tragic side story too which would nearly get Carl in trouble later. As we teased earlier, Burke Dennings died near the McNeil's residence under pretty suspicious conditions. When questioned about his whereabouts at the suspected time of Burke's death, Carl lied and said he was at the cinema. The, de- the detective in charge of the case was Lieutenant William F. Kinderman, and he was a bit of a film buff. And when Carl's story didn't line up with the runtime of the movie he claimed he had seen, he was forced to give his true location on the night. You see, Carl's wife, Willie, often claimed that their only daughter had passed away not long after they emigrated to the States. But this was not the total truth. Instead, their daughter had fallen in with the wrong crowd and become a heroin addict. A drug which was super popular in the 70s, mainly because of its strong effects and cheap price. On the night of the Dennings' death, Carl had been making his monthly trip to the slums of Washington to see his daughter and to give her her monthly allowance. He feared that without his support, his daughter would die quicker, although he conceded that his money probably only went to feed his daughter's habit, and it broke his heart to see what she had become, saying she was getting skinnier and frailer with each visit. And it made him sick to see the track marks on her arms as she reached out through the cat crack in the doorway for the money. No words were ever swapped, just a quick transaction of money in the door would shut again, leaving the poor Swiss man wondering if she would be alive next month when he returned again. That's sad. You know? So as we said, at this stage, we know Burke is dead. So what happened here? The first theory was that Burke was drunk. The McNeil's temporary home was located at the top of a hill and concrete steps ran down to the main street from the side of their house. So it's believed Burke left the McNeil's, most likely forgetting that he was supposed to be babysitting Regan and fell down the steps, breaking his neck in the process. Chris got the news at about quarter to midnight from the second director, Chuck. But not everyone was happy with the initial cause of death. Both Chris and Lieutenant Kinderman thought there was more to the story and they were right. Before we get into that though, the night is still young and the McNeil residents would not be able to relax just yet. Now, bear with me here, right? The only witness to this next part are Chris and Sharon. Both women were scared and upset. Burke's death shook them and the coupled with Regan's deteriorating condition, it had been a rough day. So maybe their minds played tricks on them. But they claim that around 5 a.m. that morning, Regan burst from her room doing a spider walk, well, more like a spider run, and her tongue resembled that of a serpent. So like Bray Wyatt, but sped up. Think Bray Wyatt, rest in peace, Mm. but 
doing the Flintstones start in their car thing, you know, when they're up in their tippy toes and there's that like tingling sound, that tingling. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Imagine that in a spider walk, but she's going forward, backward, climbing the walls, the works. In fact, Sharon claims that she was being chased around the house by Regan that night as she spider walked. That's terrifying. Imagine running down and seeing this spider walking demon voice preteen chasing you down. It sounds like something out of Resident Evil. Motherfucking liquors. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, this was enough to call in Dr. Klein. I would think fucking so. Who, <laughs> along with a, neural, a neuropsychiatrist, came to observe Regan and her demonic antics. After about a half an hour, Dr. Klein again sedated the child. The psychiatrist hypnotized Regan, trying to tap into her subconscious in hope of gaining some insight, but before he could get deep enough in, Regan attacked him, cutting the session short. I nearly said cutting him short. (laughs) (laughs) That would have been a fucking cool way to end the session. (laughs) (laughs) Karate monkey strikes again. The psychiatrist suggested hysteria, just as you were talking about earlier, brought yep. on by trauma from the divorce as a possible cause. Bullshit. Loads of kids go through fucking divorces. None of them get possessed by the devil. <laughs> Admitting Regan to the Barringer Clinic in Dayton for two weeks for additional testing and a little rest and relaxation. Once again, the treatments were unsuccessful. Dr. Barringer, however, himself suggested an exorcism. Finally, someone sees it's not a normal case. Yeah, but he he sees it's not a normal case, but he suggests it on like purely medical grounds. His Mm -hmm. logic being that if mentally Regan believes she was possessed, then maybe performing an exorcism would trick her mind into believing she was free of the demon, in turn allowing real doctors to talk to her and find the real root of the issue. Kind of like a placebo effect. Pretty much, yeah. So, with this, Chris made an appointment with Father Karras to discuss the logistics of making an exorcism happen. Father Karras agreed to meet with Chris, and upon hearing her story, agreed to go see Regan. Father Karras felt especially drawn to this case, as he had also been experiencing some strange events in his life. While all this went on with the McNeils, Father Karras's crisis of faith continued, which had only been exasperated by the death of his mother. His mother had ended up in the Bellevue Hospital neuropsychiatric ward after what appeared to be a bit of a mental breakdown. That must be a really famous fucking mental hospital. Bellevue, I've heard of Because well, yeah. I've never heard of it until I watched Barney Miller. And uh, every time they had anybody that was a little loony and it was like, call Bellevue. <laughs> <laughs> must be. So after a few weeks here, she was released back to her home where not long after she passed away due to her worsening edema condition. So edema is swelling caused by too much fluid trapped in the body's tissues. It was affecting her brain and was what caused her breakdown earlier. She was dead a couple of days before her landlord eventually found her. So this obviously filled Karis with both guilt and grief. Grief at the loss of his mother and guilt for leaving her alone in the apartment to die alone. So in the meantime, Lieutenant Kinderman had been to see Chris to ask a few questions in relation to Burke Denning's death. See, he believed that there was more to the story. After careful examination of Burke's body, it was discovered that in the fall, his head had been twisted at the neck and was exactly 100 degrees and 80 degrees from where it should be. You know, like an owl. Yikes. There was only a very, very slim chance that it could have happened naturally. And Kinderman believed that it was more likely that a very strong man twisted Burke's head around, snapping his neck and then dumped him down the steps in an attempt to make it look like an accident. Must have been a fucking, what, like the mountain or the fucking Game of Thrones. Yeah. 
He even believed that the murder of Burke Dennings took place in Regan's bedroom as her room overlooked the steps and the trajectory of the fall did seem to line up with Regan's bedroom window. The window Chris found wide open the night of Dennings' death upon her return from Dr. Klein's. Want to hear another fucked up Regan story? Maybe. (laughs) Again, Chris is the only witness to this event, so take it with a pinch of salt, and it's a bit graphic. Okay. Chris claims that after Kinderman left, Regan could be heard trashing around the bed again. When Chris entered, she found a bloody Regan stabbing her vagina with a crucifix while screaming, Let Jesus fuck you! Over and over again. When Chris attempted to disarm Regan of her holy dildo, Regan grabbed her by the head and shoved it into the wound, now screaming, Lick me! Lick me! When Chris eventually managed to free herself, she claims Regan, sitting with her back to her, twisted her head around 180 degrees, just like the owl, and spoke in in the voice of the deceased Burke Dennings. Chris said that in Burke's adult male voice, Regan said, Look what she did to me, your cunting daughter. So essentially admitting to the murder of Burke. Yeah, pretty much. Pazuzu was taking credit for it, not Regan. But uh, yeah, so uh, what kind of crucifix do you think she would she used? Like, was it a normal lowercase T shape, or did it have those bits sticking out? At yeah, the end? that's what I mean. I mean, the T has to be easier, right? It's not like she was in there listening to Barry White with some scented candles. Like she was tapping her vagina. I think I don't think it really matters. Yeah, fair point. And now we know if you want to get Amy in the mood, it's Barry White and scented candles. Vanilla, I believe, is her favorite. Okay, with the vanilla candles, but you're going to turn me off with Barry White. <laughs> I only think I of Ali McBeal. Do you know I why? I can't even think of any proper Barry White songs. Anytime I You're hear Barry, anytime mm-hmm. I hear Barry White's name, the first sound that comes into my head mm-hmm. is "Fun Loving Criminals." Barry White. Saved my life, <laughs> Barry White. Saved my life, got me back with my old ex-wife. Oh no, mommy's playing the whole time at home. I do <laughs> remember that one. My mom did too. Mm-hmm. It was the Ali McBeal fucking Adam thing. McBeal, yeah. But I like the fun loving criminals because they were fun. Yeah, did you know the Scooby Snack song and all that I shit. I like Scooby Snack. But um, yeah, anytime I hear Barry White, and it's such a smooth, easygoing song, I just instantly think of that song instead of Barry White songs. Yeah. So that's what I'd have on for you with your vanilla candles. Fun loving criminals. criminals. Oh, see you in the morning. (laughs) Anyway, needless to say, this crazy incident caused Chris to take some extra precautions, keeping Regan sedated and restraining her arms and legs to the bed. She also emptied the room of all small objects as they all had allegedly been flying around the room independently and all hard surfaces were covered with padding. It was under these circumstances that Pazuzu and Karis first came face to face. Karis, making his first consultation call, first spoke to Chris to again try and lower her expectations when it came to the possibility of the Vatican approving an exorcism. There are many criteria that need to be filled in order to convince the church that a case is genuine possession. With very few exorcism requests being approved from the higher-ups, the church was desperately trying to modernize. The flock grew smaller by the year and being seen to hold on to such archaic practices such as exorcisms wasn't good for their public image. But faith is faith and if they were approached with an in, with indisputable proof of a possession then God requires that image be put aside and the soul be saved. Among the signs of demonic possession are speaking in unknown languages, discerning distant or hidden things and displaying a physical strength that is at odds with the possessed person's age or state of health. 
So supernatural knowledge and strength that is impossible for the afflicted victim to possess. Father Karras says in his first visit with Regan that she was now almost always going under the persona of Pazuzu. Karras began by introducing himself to Regan in which he res- she responded, I'm not Regan, I'm the devil. Now kindly undo these straps. Karras simply replied that if she was truly the devil, then she should be able to remove her own restraints. To which Pazuzu responded, such a vulgar display of power, Karras. It then went on to compare it to Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. When Jesus returned from the grave after crucifixion, why didn't he reveal himself to everybody? Why did he choose to only show himself to his 12 followers? Surely they already believed. Should he have not shown himself to the ones who killed him in the first place, making believers out of them? So almost seems like it's a propaganda story someone made up to gain some followers, you know? Yeah. Or was it like the devil said, it was a just it would have been too vulgar a display of power, too much for the unbelievers to take, you know? So mm. who knows? Karis asked her where or asked it where Regan was, to which it replied, In here with us. Your mother's here too. Would you like to leave a message? Karis followed up by asking what was his mother's maiden name? Pazuzu stopped stared and projectile vomited all over Karis, leaving him covered in a thick green goo similar looking to pea soup. Even this wasn't enough to convince Karis. Although he knew this case was definitely out of the ordinary, he still believed there were mental health issues at play. He suggested that Regan be institutionalized in the best hospital Chris could find for at least six months of therapy and observation. He believed convincing the church of a genuine possession would be near impossible and said that Regan's claim of being the devil himself would work against her. Obviously, Chris wasn't happy with this outcome and pressed the priest to push for an exorcism. Seeing the pain in her face, the desperation, he agreed to go think on the subject. But before he left, he had to ask Chris a question. Did Regan know he was coming and did she know his mother had passed recently? To both questions, Chris replied, no. Karras, despite his wavering beliefs, decided to do more investigating, returning the next day with a tape recorder. If he was going to get this exorcism approved, he would need hardcore, indisputable evidence. So that's what he set out to do. He didn't have to wait long because moments into his second session, Bazuzu began to speak, spitting out Latin and French like it was its first language. A win for Karras. Yeah, but for every step forward, there was an obstacle put in the way, because if this served as proof, the next move would only discredit the claims again. Looking to test the afflicted girl, Karis revealed a small bottle. Worried, Regan inquired as to what the bottle contained, to which Karis responded, holy water. This upset Regan, who thrashed and screamed as the priest splashed the water all over her body. The bottle only contained regular water, which a demon should not be harmed by. Wait, what's the, what's the difference? One is blessed by a priest and the other isn't. Obviously, it all makes so much sense now. <laughs> the only saving grace here was that after the water hit her, Regan began speaking in a strange language. One at first the priest believed to be possibly Aramaic, but when taken to a language expert later, he would discover it was actually English, just backwards. In the tape, it was revealed that the demon was screaming, I am no one. Sharon Spencer claimed she later called Karis to come over. She had something to show him, but she didn't want Chris to see. She didn't want to upset her any more than she already had, like or already was. She yeah. hadn't done it. It wasn't her fucking fault. <laughs> According to Sharon, who is the only living witness to this part of the story, she brought Karis to Regan's room. 
removed her quilt and pulled up her nightdress. When she did, the words, help me, appeared on Regan's abdomen, appearing on their own out of the clear blue sky. This was the final straw, and with the taped evidence in hand, Father Karras made his way to the church head offices to speak with his supervisors and to request an exorcism. To his surprise, the elder priest agreed, trusting his judgment and believing the evidence presented to be sufficient grounds for performing the rites. The only catch is they believed him to be too inexperienced to perform such a ritual alone, and while they agreed a psychiatrist would definitely be worth having on hand as an assistant, they felt it should be a more seasoned priest that should take on the lead. And with that, Father Marin was recruited fresh off of the plane from Iraq. I'd have to assume when he was briefed on the situation and heard the name Pazuzu come up, he just, you know, felt duty-bound to act and get involved. Maybe. Hey, you. Yeah, you. You like the podcast? Want some more? Then head on over to our Patreon page where for just five euro a month you get up to 12 extra shows in that month along with piles of mini-sodes covering fun facts from the world of horror and true crime. Each week we drop multiple shows such as Real Monsters where we look at the inspiration behind the movie killers or Behind the Mask where we take a look at the influential people and happenings in the world of Hollywood. All this plus movie reviews, watch-alongs and regular AMAs. That means ask me anything. You really do get a bang for your buck. And, and by bang, I mean like podcast. I'm not soliciting or anything. Shit. Um, moving on. For just five euro a month, all this could be yours. So head on over to www.patreon.com forward slash IAA pod. That's www.patreon.com forward slash IAA pod. And start listening now. So with that, all the pieces were in place and the exorcism of Regan McNeil was set to happen imminently. I read that Marin and Karis didn't even meet beforehand. Like their first time laying eyes on each other was on the night of the exorcism. And when Karis asked Marin if he wanted the details of the case, the old priest declined. Yeah, Marin had learned from experience that what the demon said was irrelevant. Again, in his eyes, he's dealing with Satan, the great deceiver. He advised Karis to ignore the demon's vulgar insults and not to engage with, in conversation with it. In other words, stick to the script, kid. Okay. So as you could imagine, to begin with, this played out pretty much how you'd imagine an exorcism would play out. Just like you see in the movies. The priests began by ensuring that Regan was properly restrained. They then got out the Bibles, crosses and holy water and went to work, reciting prayers over the child as they routinely sprinkled her in holy water. Now the details are sketchy and like a lot of the more wilder claims that we've addressed in today's story, they come from secondhand sources or lone witnesses. This next bit is primarily accounts of what Chris, Sharon, Carl and Willie heard from standing outside the room in the hallway or from Karis in between sessions as the priest rested. The alleged story is that Regan's bed lifted from the ground as the priest prayed, eventually slamming back down onto the floor causing the lights to flicker. In this flicker, Karis claims he saw the demon's true face, pale with black eyes, flicks of red framing its face. He said it was the face of pure evil, an image he would never forget and take with him to his grave. As all this went on, Regan again began to vomit the strange pea-coloured goop, laughing in between and what it called the priest's feeble attempts. At this point, Father Marin invoked the name of Jesus in the ritual, causing Pazuzu to anger and sending anything in the room not nailed down flying. 
Again, no proof on this, but during the ritual, Father Karras claimed to see Regan's head turn a full 360 degrees Ooh. away around. As if it was not restricted by muscles, tendons, or bones like the rest of us. He also claims she caused a mild earthquake, which seemed to affect only that room as no records of any tremors in that area were recorded and no one else in the house seemed to feel it. Pity they didn't catch it on camera. If that was today, we could at least watch all this going on and have some proof. The early 70s, we have to rely on witness testimony and let's be honest about it. This all sounds a little bit far-fetched. You think that's far-fetched? After the quake, Karis claimed all the bedclothes flew off of Regan's bed and her restraints ripped, freeing the demon. But the prayer was working and a now seemingly unconscious girl began to levitate in the air, arms stretched out as if she was nailed to the cross. Kara says that it, as she levitated, the two priests began to chant, The power of Christ compels you. And as they did, Marin again began to splash about the holy water. This time, though, the water hit Regan's flesh like a whip, slicing at her skin as it hit her. As the girl returned to the bed, Karis raced to again restrain her, all while Marin continued the ritual. Mm. At this point, the demon was weakened enough so as that the weary priests could go take a little break. Marin, still struggling with the heart issues from his first encounter with Pazuzu, was weak and the witnesses say he looked visibly shook exiting the room. He was getting sick, like, from a... It was taking his toll on him. I yeah. mean, this man was elderly at this stage, mm. like, you know. From yeah. what I heard, like, he's shuffling around the fucking place. So he's going up against this demon that took it all of him in his heyday when he was in his, what... 30s yeah yeah 40s maybe i can't remember yeah pazuzu in a last ditch attempt at self-preservation tried to play on the younger priest's grief mimicking the voice of his mother mary begging him for help and asking demi why do you do this to me demi help me please demi was her kind of nickname pet name i don't know maybe in her own language it was it okay. was damien i'm not too sure okay but uh, that's what she used to call him this all became too much for Karis, who snapped and screamed, You're not my mother! Ultimately, You're feeding, not my mom! You're not my mom! <laughs> Stranger danger! I need an adult! <laughs> Ultimately feeding the beast and giving it just enough energy for one more attack. Knowing this to be the case, Mirren expelled Karis from the room, choosing to go the next round with Pazuzu alone. As a decision that would ultimately cost him his life, but would also bring about the temporary end of Pazuzu. Temporary end. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Otherwise, this wouldn't be called Pazuzu Part 1. Oh, <laughs> fair point. <laughs> Officially, Marin died from his heart issues. But as the story goes, Karis left Marin alive and Regan in restraints. When he returned to the room after composing himself outside, he found Marin dead at Regan's bedside and the now free Pazuzu sitting in the corner of the bed, smiling. Karis, in a fit of rage, grabbed Regan, deciding if prayer wasn't going to work, then he'd beat the demon out of her instead. A practice the priest still practiced in Ireland up until about the, what, 80s? Yeah, <laughs> later. <laughs> he held the child down, subduing her with a few rights and lefts first. <laughs> and as he began to strangle her, he screamed, get out of her and come into me. Chris said she could hear the ruckus in the room and as she approached the priest went silent as soon as he stopped Regan started the real Regan she burst into tears and the expression on her face almost instantly softened 
Seconds later, there was a crash, shattering glass, and it was over. Chris ran into the room where she found what she claimed to be the real Regan. She said she could feel it in her gut. Maternal instinct. She knew her daughter was free and back with her. But what was the crash? Stone Cold Steve Austin came through, stunned the demon out of Regan and left. Drink beer, raise hell and leave. And that's the bottom line because Stone Cold said so. Yeah, read the story, please. Not Josh story. <laughs> well, it's believed. Well, you hear glass smashing. You think Stone Cold straight away. <laughs> well, it's believed that Karis managed to pull Bazuzu from the weakened Regan into himself. And in, in the seconds he had before Bazuzu could take control, he threw himself from the bedroom window falling just as Burke Dennings did from the first floor of the house down the concrete steps to the footpath below. Father Dyer who we spoke about earlier from the rap party was close by and as first responders began to arrive in the scene so did he giving Damien the last rites before he died. Dyer said the Karis died smiling finally a believer again and a peace knowing he had beat the demon and saved the life of the young Regan McNeil but had he really? Or was the devil just playing possum? That question will have to wait to be answered next week when we return for Bazuzu Part 2. Awesome. I can't wait for Part 2. We covered so much today, I can only imagine what's in store next week. There's plenty more story, don't you worry. <laughs> so what happened to Regan and Chris after all that? Regan remembered nothing from the night but regularly had nightmares for years after. She began therapy and eventually she began to get her life back together. Chris on the other hand, well, she couldn't let go as easy and she wrote a book called A Mother's Explanation. In fact, Chris became a student and scholar regarding spiritual exorcisms as well as an educator and so-called expert on the subject. Yeah, now that you mention it, her film work does slow down in the 70s and it's nearly non-existent in the 80s. Chris's obsession with the subject cost her a lot. It severely damaged her relationship with Regan, who became estranged from Chris after the release of her book. Regan wasn't happy having her story told in the public and resented Chris for not letting her move on. I mean, you know, they're just getting over it and now it's splashed all over the papers again because it's, you know, former fucking Hollywood hotshot yeah. fucking releases book on exorcism. Uh, they would stay estranged until last year when Chris lost her sight in another misguided possession investigation. Oh, I heard of that case. Those two girls that were missing last year in Georgia, right? they were missing for three days in the woods when they were finally found. They both claimed to be possessed by Pazuzu. And one of them died in that exorcism, yeah? Yeah, yeah. After they ripped the eyes out of the head of Chris McNeil, who came to see if she could help, feeling the case resembled Regan's enough and Lightmare and feeling duty bound to act when Pazuzu's name is mentioned. Mm. But that's a whole story itself. We might have a quick look, a quick look at it again next week if we have the time. We'll see. Okay. And I'm sure there's people wondering as well because he kind of dropped off the map and he is a cop and he is investigating the situation. Mm. And that's uh, Kinderman. Now, oh, I, yeah. I intentionally didn't really focus on Kinderman this week because he is the center of the story next week. Okay. And we will be dealing with him a lot. But obviously, people have the questions of uh, what was his uh, final decision on the Park Dennings mm. death. He allowed that to be ruled accidental. Okay. He knew it was Regan. Mm-hmm. Couldn't really explain how it was Regan or why it was Regan. And mm. he knew something strange was going on in the house, even though he wasn't really around it. But he knew by yeah. he was interviewing all these people. He knew they were all acting funny about it. He knew there was something going on in the house. And it just didn't make sense that Regan, would, in her natural state, would be able to 
turn around. I wouldn't be able to turn a man's fucking head around. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I, 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 there's no possible way I'd be able to mm, do it. Mm. Not unless I took a about fucking five or six or seven or eight. John did it gradually, maybe. <laughs> you know? <laughs> fucking put his head in a vice or something. But I, mean, oh, I don't Josh. think. <laughs> but that's the point. A fucking 11 or 12, 13 year old girl isn't going to be yeah, able to fucking do exactly. it. So that was kind of like the case of he could keep following it and try and nail the fucking girl for it. But how the, the fuck are you going to prove it? Yeah. So And he knew himself something was wrong. Yeah. And I think next week when we get back to him, everything that happens to him next just proves to him that he did the right thing in the 70s when yeah. he was dealing with this. Okay. And that's about it. That was a good fucking long one starting off the new year yeah, for a part fucking one. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, every time I kind of thought I was on the road to getting this story done, something else would pop up. Hmm. And I'd be like, oh my God, that's interesting. What? Gotta, gotta put that, that in. in. Yeah, gotta stick that in here. Gotta yeah. stick this in here. And it was just a story that just kept on fucking giving and giving and giving. Mm. So I kept on writing and writing and writing. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and next week is no fucking different. We have more possession, more Pazuzu, throw in a serial killer and a possible zombie Karis. Ooh, can't wait. So, yeah. <laughs> Another fun week in the horrorverse. But until then, I am Dr. Hardy Ray, smoking scene teaser. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Before we get to our other ends, we're supposed to be plugging our fucking stuff. We got Patreon, where we have Behind the Mask and Real Monsters, where uh, this week we are doing Unreal Monsters some more possession cases, which are pretty fucking cool. Mm-hmm. We got mini monsters and creepy cast of crypts dropping every, almost every day, four days a week. Um, oh sorry that you can follow us on all our socials at it's alive alive pod and you can follow Amy at at Amy Rose IAA oh yeah. yeah that's a good one to follow so follow us on everything tell a friend subscribe follow love us like us anything just just you know give us money <laughs> <laughs> That's Gavin. Huh? No, oh, it's $5 a month. It's not that much. And it's fucking shitloads. There's about fucking 18 episodes of each show up there at the moment. And they are fucking all bangers. I think we put up in a In fairness, there. We do put a bit of work in them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Them. I mean, yeah. uh, people saw that last week. We get, The last two weeks, we've given a few samples of mm-hmm. Patreon stuff to give you a taste of what's over there so i think that. actually some of the patreon episodes are our best episodes yeah you like a lot of our patreon I stuff do. all right i yeah. think a lot of our real monster stuff come out really fucking mm. well and we've covered some serious fucking monsters over there yeah, so. i've had to sit out on what on one or two. there was one you yeah. sat out about. Yeah, right? yeah that was um peter carton peter carton yeah the uh, vampire of dusseldorf nope <laughs> so if you want to hear me and my dog do that one <laughs> she didn't even like it <laughs> yeah I had to kick her out of the room eventually that's too. awful anyway as I was saying until next week I'm Dr. Harley Ray Smokenstein THC and I'm Amy Rose it's Alive Alive all the guts and gore with none of the guilt see you next week same Alive Alive time same Harvest channel love you bye bye hey lady I love you bye bye